My name is Monique Lopez. Um, I'm the, the founder of Pueblo, and uh, today we'll be talking a little bit about that. Let's start at the beginning. How did you get into planning? How did you get into this work? So I got into planning accidentally. I didn't know that planning was a career or was a thing at all. I grew up in a, in a small rural community out in Imperial County. Um, it's also an environmental justice community, um, but growing up there, I didn't, I didn't understand what environmental justice meant or environmental injustices meant mm. for me and my family. Grew up in a low-income community of color. We ate every night, but we lived month to month. I was the first in my family to go away to college, and I was fortunate enough to have a professor in undergrad who encouraged me to go on to grad school. And I decided to go on to grad school at Cal State Long Beach, and there I was doing my master's thesis work on the Salton Sea restoration process and doing um, social justice analysis on, on what was being done. And this was about 12 years ago or so. And so I decided to go back to my hometown and finish out my research because the Salton Sea was about five miles from where I used to live. My intention was only to stay there six months. I ended up staying there for about three and a half years. A close family friend came up to me one day and said, uh, Monique, do you know that they want to build a sewage sludge incinerator plant? What that basically is, is a facility that burns shit. And they call it renewable energy, which, which it takes more energy to burn than it actually creates. And there's a lot of uh, health implications for the community and also for the wildlife as well. So uh, they invited me to a bar where there was this, this community-led meeting to discuss this. And so I went to the bar where all revolutions start. And, <laughs> and I didn't know what was going on. The, the town um, that, that I'm, I feel like I'm closest, co closely connected to is Nyland and about a thousand people in this town. And there was 50 people in this bar. So I don't know of any other community meeting where 5% of the population is having a community discussion right. about an issue. So I'm in there and it's loud and people are mad and I end up staying. There's about 10 people left in this bar. And these are the people that I end up working most intimately and closely with the, the next three and a half years. Mm. At the time, the, and I, I had no clue about what planning was and how there is all these planning efforts already in place to make this incinerator reality in a community where the land is cheap and the people are politically weak, politicians are cheap, and so there was already verbal committed support from, from the elected officials in the area. And I'm coming right out of grad school with the degree in political science and, and very naive thinking, let's do direct democracy, let's do a ballot initiative process. So I ended up co-authoring a ballot initiative with my, a friend of mine and help um, organize and lead the campaign. In that process, I, I learned a few, few key things. Throughout the process, I would always find myself going to the planning department asking for what is the, what's the latest on the environmental impact report for this facility? Mm. Where can I get a map of X, Y, and Z? And I kept finding myself going to the planning department. I'm like, who the hell are these planners? Mm. Who are they? They hold all the information. And my experience at the counter was not one that was friendly, was not one that val valued me as an individual community member asking for information. 
And a lot of times, navigating that space where I didn't have the right language, planning language, the vernacular to understand exactly how to ask for a particular document. So they knew what I was talking about and what, what we needed and, and wanted to, to, to help us get a better understanding of the project, but because we didn't say the right phrase and then we didn't get the information right. right. So understanding that and, and, and so I was young, I was, I was 24. I, I learned very quickly how important planning is and how planning has historically been used to legitimize unjust actions. And I learned very quickly the importance of understanding that process and ensuring that there is community voice in that process. And when there's not looking for other avenues and we looked for a political avenue through the ballot initiative process to ensure that people have a voice in, in what is going to be done in their community. Three and a half years passed by, we ended up beating the company. 68% um, of the countywide uh, voters voted in favor of the ballot initiative and now Imperial County is 100% is protected from this type of industry ever coming back. We learned that this industry then tried to do this in another community. The other community had heard of our work mm -hmm. and we gave them our information, our intel and they were also able to defeat this company in their community. And, and all of that was, was a labor of love, it was unpaid, and it was completely grassroots from the fundraising we did. And so wait a minute, yeah. so this was unpaid, so mm -hmm. three and a half years is a, a lot of yeah. time to dedicate to an unpaid endeavor, so how are you, how are you getting by it? At the time, I was working um, two jobs. I was teaching at the local community college, history and political science, and I was also working at the American Lung Association doing air quality education and advocacy um, as well, so working in the local school systems and educating kids about how, one, how to, to um, address when there's an asthma episode, but also how to look for environmental triggers as well, whether that be pesticide spraying or field burning. So that's, that was what supported me financially. So it's still in the realm of advocacy and still in the realm of community co-empowerment. And so I would be, that would be my job. And then I, and the rest of my time was working on, on this campaign and, and everybody on this campaign was unpaid. We had zero planners on our team. We, we, had, we had people with diverse backgrounds that we, utilized everybody's skill in that space and that was another big learning lesson is that everybody regardless of what background they have they have something to contribute mm -hmm. in that space we had someone from a public health background who was able to bring in like some public health research and I, i'll never forget like there's this woman um, candy she probably single-handedly collected the most petition signatures because you have to petition to get on the ballot mm -hmm. but she was a champion like she would go out there on knocking doors and she had a way of communicating with people and this is a stay-at-home mom that that like had no previous experience in that realm but like she just had a way to tell her story mm -hmm. and what this would mean for her and her family to be able to tell a story that would resonate with people and so there was folks from all sorts of backgrounds all sorts of education levels all sorts of socioeconomic um, ethnicities that we all came together and because we had no no other choice but to honor each other's strengths and talents and strategically place people in positions of leadership where they could personally excel and help help the overall campaign so you sort of learned organizing on the fly essentially 
Yeah, I, I learned I learned all that stuff in, on the fly. I learned organizing on the fly. I learned planning on the fly. I learned um, how to write a press release, media advocacy, how to do interviews on the fly. I, I had no experience at all in any of that. So there was a lot of learning in the process. And I, I would say, you know, that time in my life is, is the time that I had the, the greatest amount of education and ironically with no student loans, right? And so, and so like that, that like it taught me so much, but it also humbled me in a lot of ways in really acknowledging and honoring people's talent and time and stories and, and what that means in the process. And it really showed me the importance of community voice and also the importance that community has the solutions for themselves. Mm. And I think oftentimes in the planning realm, we want to look to quote unquote experts, which yes, they're they're experts in their own right, but how do we also also acknowledge and incorporate in a genuine way the the, the knowledge that the community holds and how do we hear from their stories and pull out the things from their stories that that we can then incorporate into a plan or a policy moving forward. So so yeah, it was all learning pretty much on the fly. We didn't have any other option but to continue, but to persevere because the only other option was that this company was going to come in. Mm. I honestly believe that the, the, the company didn't think that we would be at it so long. And I see a lot of similarities too in, in struggles happening here in LA and throughout the country is the, the resiliency that the community yeah. holds and certain forces at play, not believing that the community will persevere, but what they fail to acknowledge is that they have no other choice. Right. So I come into these spaces with that understanding and humility. I was pretty exhausted after that, uh, working a couple jobs, and I was just exhausted because I also put myself through undergrad and grad school, and I worked two, three jobs at a time, putting myself through school. So I was just tired. So I ended moving back to like Orange County, LA area, and I was working at an organization who um, I was only there for, for a little, like about a year, year and a half. I was stepping in for someone who actually was hit by a car and was injured pretty severely. I um, learned a lot about port and freight transportation because that was the, the work that I was doing there. In that experience as well, I found myself communicating with planners all the time, being in spaces with planners all the time. And I, I really felt that I needed to go back to school to better understand what is this beast that's called planning, yeah. to understand the language of planning. Not just like the kind of words that are being used, but the process, yeah. the bureaucracy, the systems that have, you know, in many cases have been oppressive systems, yeah. um, particularly for low-income communities of color, and have been systems that have continually favored a group of people that have always had power. I decided to go to the, the University of Oregon to study community and regional planning. I, I was able to secure a scholarship, 100% scholarship for the first year. I didn't know how I was going to pay for the second year, but I was like, I'll figure it out when I get there. <laughs> Yeah, and, and everything I've ever done, I've never had previous experience in doing. But there's two things that that I that I, I feel like I, I I hold. One is my integrity, and then the second is just working hard. Yeah. 
And so I went, and, and one of the things that, that really enticed me to go, in addition to the scholarship, is that um, Dr. Geraldo Sandoval is, in, uh, is at the University of Oregon. He was just starting there, and he does a lot of work around community engagement, around uh, transit-oriented development and displacement, around working with um, the Latino community specifically. So when I was there, I, I, I had the great fortune of, of working very closely with him. I was his research assistant, and, and um, he was also my advisor, where I, I, I specifically focused on race and the built environment, and also specifically around how it manifests itself in, in art or what you can and cannot have as an expression of culture and identity and space because of, of who is in political power. And so I focused on a small little community um, in Woodburn, which 90% of the downtown business district is, uh, is a Latino-owned business. Mm-hmm. However, the um, city council in their entire history had only ha- ever had one Latino representative. And so there was a lot of control over space right. by the city council in, in what those business owners can and cannot have in that space. And so looking both at the political, the racial, um, the spatial dynamics and looking at that through like the lens and the vernacular of planning, what does that mean for us when we navigate space either as individuals or institutions mm-hmm. And what does that mean for individuals who do not have the privilege of navigating those particular spaces in the way that folks who are maybe more fluent or folks who are white are able to navigate those right. spaces? That's a long-standing community there as well, isn't it? The Latino community. And so, yeah, had they had they ever had like any real relationship with planners or with the city, or like <coughs> what had been when you encountered them? Like, what was the state of the relationship? Um. The state of the relationship, I mean, there, like I said, there was one city council member at one particular time, um, 10 years, I think, prior to when I started studying, doing research there, that was part of the Latino community. But I think the relationship was one of not wanting to ruffle any feathers, mm-hmm. you know, as long as they're able to continue to maintain quietly their business. So it wasn't necessarily an adversarial relationship at all. Or the formal like business improvement district folks, which were a few of the Latino business owners, like they they tried because there was also a lot of um, there was also a lot of racial tensions in the community between the the Anglo, which is how they like to refer to themselves, the Anglo and the Latino community, mm. and and how the the Anglo community felt that the Latino community was just exerting themselves in space too much, even though they were the majority of the population in the community. Wow. And, and, and in Oregon, it was really interesting, and in Woodburn in particular, is, um, the racism is, is this nice racism. It's the racism that comes with, like, a smile and an apple pie. Okay. And, like, it's, it's the racism that, that sometimes you're like, are they being racist? Or, like, are they just don't know? Or, right, like, not sure. we don't, yeah. yeah. And, so, and so there was a lot of that as well. And so one of the, one of the conflicts I was studying is that Picun, which is the the Pineros organizing group there, because there's a lot of um, farm workers who live there and then also people who work in the forest industry. So there's a union there. And the tension was around, they wanted to put up a mural that told the immigration and also farming history of that particular community. So you also have, they wanted to put like uh, Japanese American people there, they, they, Chinese, 
to Latino, and there was a, a major tension around that. And and this is this is just a mural, and people were freaking out about it. The irony, though, there's a lot of there's a lot of art and mural being represented inside of space. Mm. So inside of the restaurants, right, inside right. of the community college, inside of the the union hall. Because the city didn't have jurisdiction over in the inside spaces right. of what you can put on your walls. And who had the power right. Right, right, right. at the city dictated what you could and could not put on your walls. Yeah. So I study a lot in, in regards to like identity and space and, yeah. and what that means and looks like. And so I was able to better understand the nuances of planning in a way that the things that aren't talked about, the yeah. things that are taboo to talk about when when it comes to terms of planning or or some might say in the planning world what does that have to do with planning yeah it's just a completely different understanding of core concepts within planning like reclaiming streets for people like for for communities of color Mm -hmm. that often means like cultural space yes making space for me being brown in public you know like having the right to have my story have whatever Mm -hmm. it is um be validated in public and that's kind of what you're talking about here whereas like it's really interesting that they would have had to kind of hide like keep it in the spaces to celebrate it in spaces that weren't imposing upon the other community. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, this this concept of uh, placemaking is a concept that has always been applied in part- in particular, I think, in, in communities of color. They have right. always tried to to share their identity in that space in a lot of different ways. And, and unfortunately, planning has historically stripped them out of that ability to do that. Yeah because it didn't look or feel the way those in power thinks it should look and feel. Right. And that became very evident to me, is the direct connection between that power of who has power mm-hmm. and who can say what looks and feels a certain way. What constitutes a public space? What, a, pro- a proper a public, proper public space. space, a presentable public space. Because there was also like things where um, the facade of one of these historic buildings was colored bright red and green. And like that was a major point of contention. Like, like how dare wow. they, you know, desecrate basically this historic building? Because now they've painted this 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 like horrendous red color, which I thought was pretty amazing. <laughs> and then and then also like just this concept of trying to separate um, brown people as well. So I'd be interviewing some folks in the community. I'd go in there as a, a U of O grad student researcher. You know, and I, and I also had during one interview where a woman was being very candid. And here's one of these moments where you're like, do I say something or just do I let her keep talking? Mm. And she's like, but you're not one of those people. Oh, no. Wow. And so I let her keep talking. <laughs> one thing that I'm, I'm hyper cognizant of is my privilege. Mm. Even though I grew up in an environmental justice community, even though I've, I, I grew up in a low-income household, even though... I'm a person of color, even though I'm queer. But I have privilege in the sense that that what my education has afforded me, what my professional networks have afforded me, what my ability to be in certain rooms, whether that be at the Department of Transportation or at Metro or what have you. Right. Also what my marriage has afforded me. Like, in, in no way that I, I ever ever want to like speak on behalf of communities in which in a lot of ways, I've been able to, to gain access and privilege, and I want to be very mindful of that in those spaces. But at the same time, when someone then says, you know, but you're not one of those kind, right. but I am. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I am. 
And the thing is, too, is I think sometimes in planning spaces, that, that statement of you're not one of those kind is, is sometimes maybe reframed as like, well, this is what it means to be a professional right. in this space. Or you're, you're not going to challenge the test quote too much, or you're not going to, uh, what's the word? Do you exceed your station? Oh, That's kind right. of a big deal. But with my privilege, I also hold that, that I am one. Yeah. As well in that space. And I, I never want to be seen as someone that's speaking on behalf of, but ensuring that when I am in that space, that I also elevate the voices that, that right. can't have the privilege to be in right. that space. Yeah. And so it's interesting that folks don't think you bring that with you. Yeah, it, it's, it's on my shoulder. It's a great responsibility. Yeah. When you're woke and, and, and woke through experience, I think in, in particular, you sometimes have trouble sleeping. Yeah. Literally. And um, that emotional labor that comes into the work that is not paid for in any means of the way, but that keeps you up at night. When I'm in that space, am I ensuring that one, like the concerns that I've experienced or the concerns I've heard in the community are also being elevated in this space? Right. Or did I keep my mouth shut because it was more comfortable to do that? Yeah. And that's seen as what a professional does. Yeah. There's a lot of you know, nuance to like, how do you elevate these issues and how do you bring them up in that space? And, and I'm one about, I'm definitely a proponent of open dialogue and respectful dialogue, reconciliation um, in that space. And so, so yeah, there is a way that, that I've learned in these spaces how to bring up those, those issues. But sometimes, you know, sometimes if you push a little too much, then, then, then it's questioned. Yeah. It's a, very, it's a really hard thing to do, especially if you're one of the only ones in the room in mm -hmm. that space that, that brings that to the table uh, because you, you don't have someone next to you to say, yeah, no, that's my experience yeah. as well. And so you are questioned, I think, and even just the idea of this, oh, you're not one of those or you're safe or we can say these things to you because you'll understand. There's an assumption that you're okay with mm -hmm. that sort of Thing and that you're on the same page right. as them, and it's it's really uncomfortable to have to constantly be pushing it, folks, because of course of the assumption that you're attacking their who they are, mm -hmm. as opposed to bringing just bringing these new mm -hmm. different realities and experiences <coughs> to the table. Yeah, and I I hope we're you know in the city of LA like we're we're moving in in a positive direction, where where more and more um, folks of color are gaining access to those spaces. And then how do we support each other in those spaces? Because right. it, it, it is a lot of emotional labor. So how do we continually support each other yeah. so that if you have something to say, that we're there with you as well. But then the other thing as well is how do we also have white allies in that space right. that are also willing to, to support and, and stand up when, when it also may be uncomfortable to do so. I really deeply admire... Um, the movement for black lives and Elisa Garza like made a statement on democracy now a few months ago about like being an ally isn't enough but you need to be an accomplice right yeah i like that and i think there's a there's a lot of folks who who may be allies and in, in you know white allies and quiet but like but like we need you to be an accomplice in that right. room in the sense that in the sense that let's support each other when we know that maybe there's something that needs to be elevated in that room because we're all privileged to be in that room right. together. But, you know, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. <laughs> and, um, and uh, yeah, little well, by little. Well, it speaks to, <clears throat> I think, that larger question that we have, that 
this push to be more inclusive, there's this push to address equity, but unless the folks at the table are allowed to speak as themselves, speak with from the experience that they have, speak with the knowledge that they bring, and be supported in that way, then you're not really being inclusive if, if that's not happening. And so right. just getting folks to the table, that's, that's not enough. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, getting folks to the table, you know, having a space for them to share concerns, visions, but also just getting them to the table is not enough. But how do we then like say, let's ditch the table. Yeah. Let's go to the streets. Right. That's kind of where all these experiences have led me to like this, this vision of, of Pueblo and what does equitable planning look like? You hear a lot of urban planners or designers and particularly young ones like saying, I want to change the city. I want to change the city. And then they have already these visions and renderings ready to go in their back right. pocket of what that change for the city is going to be. And I'm not a planner who is particularly interested in changing the city. What I'm interested in is changing the city planning process. Right. And it's like once you change the city planning process, you are going to yes ultimately change the city but you're going to change the city in a manner that's more equitable that's more sustainable that's more human and that's more just yeah and it starts with the process right and we may end up at the end of the day reconfiguring the street to the same way that that rendering had envisioned it but 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 the process is is critically important to like how we get to that particular whatever the community looks like at the end of the day and so that's something that really drives me is, is how do we ensure more equitable planning? And, and it really needs to start with the process. Yeah, but that's something I, almost every time you come up against some of these things, like when you have people saying to you, well, you're not one of those people. Like every single time that you're, you're coming into a space, you're, you're bringing a new idea, you're taking a new step forward, everything that you're coming up against is essentially telling you that the way you're thinking about this process is wrong and so how are you in your mind processing things to yourself and then and then coming moving forward from that uh there's a lot of moments of self-doubt the systems are set up to say that this is the way it's supposed to be but that doesn't mean it should be that way hmm. when i moved on from from morgan i i moved down to san diego and i i worked at an environmental justice organization the environmental health coalition hmm. and again the historical traditional planning process was imposed upon low-income community of color. There is a freeway, the 94 freeway, that cuts across several right. environmental justice communities. Basically, Caltrans and Sandag came in. They showed the community two alternatives, basically freeway expansion or freeway expansion. <laughs> All the community, and this is $600 million projects for two miles of expansion. Mm. And basically, in these community meetings, they were telling the community what you have say over it's $10 million of like what you want on the side of the freeway. Oh. You want a bike lane that goes from here to here? Do you want, do you, what, like, what kind, of, what kind of freeway art do you want? No, 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 we want to talk about the project, not, not the fluff. Yes, technically the process was being adhered to as it is written legally, but were, commu- were community members involved in designing what does regional mobility look like in their community? With my buddy Randy from City Heights CDC, we started mobilizing community members and then having community workshops to, to hear the residents' stories, but also hear what is their vision for mobility in their community. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you know, with my planning background, reading like 500 page documents of like project study reports 
that Zandag and Caltrans had done on the project where they evaluated 26 alternatives and essentially based out of the community vision that they wanted was already in part of the 26 alternatives they evaluated mm -hmm. and ranked high but failed to include in the EIR, wow. failed to include in the environmental impact report. So being able to, one, listen deeply and intently with what the community's vision is and figure out and, and, and try to condense that and figure out and report back to the community, is this what you, what you want and need? But then also being able to simultaneously understand the language of planning, understand the process, read through those documents and identify the nuggets that match that vision. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to do that and, and also mobilize the community. And we were successful in including two um, community-based alternatives in the EIR, um, which one is receiving $30 million from the Federal Highway Transit Administration to do a pilot project um, that's supposed to be starting this year for the next three years so that we have real data to, to use in the um, environmental impact report analysis about how this particular alternative will work. Hmm. Both those alternatives don't require freeway widening, they improve regional mobility, and then we were also able to successfully get a commitment from um, SANDAG, the MPO, um, to set aside $60 million for a regional tran transit hub so that those communities could access north-south connectors, which is a very poor north-south connection um, in San Diego in regards to transit. That really, again, confirmed like the process in which planning traditionally takes place is, is one that, that has historically been oppressive, has one that has completely disregarded community voice and community knowledge and community coming up with their own solutions um, and has ignored it when, when they do come up with their solutions. But it also showed me that if you are able to to listen, are able to facilitate conversations in such a way that people are able to, to share that knowledge, share their values. And then if you can then simultaneously look at planning documents and understand the bureaucracy and the politics at play and combine those two things, then you in fact can change the city planning process. Hmm. And because it, it, it has, and, and, and I think there's many struggles that have been able to do that. From all those experiences, I just saw that there was a really big need and a gap in regards to community-based organizations being able to access planning resources and services mm -hmm. to be able to do those right. two things. But also there was a big gap and a need in regards to government agencies who do planning, who maybe and let's give folks benefit of doubt, like maybe really want to, to change the planning process and do it more equitably and try to figure out how to then do that and, and, and ensure that they're maintaining relationships with the community and respecting community voice. So with that, like I've been thinking about for the past two or three years of starting a participatory planning and design firm that one could be still in those privileged spaces to work through these issues with public agencies and help be a resource in that sense and help move them closer to, to changing that process to be more equitable. But then two, to be able to provide high quality planning services and resources to community-based organizations or, or grassroots groups that need it. And so I, I was very intentional about like, well, what kind of model do I wanna set up for, for Pueblo? And I was thinking I really wanna set up a social enterprise model in which 
if I have a contract with the city agency, I charge them the full consulting rate. But if a CBO, a community-based organization, wants to bring me on for a project, I charge them a subsidized rate. And so that they are able to also access the same amount of resources. This, this is new. It's only, I'm only about six, seven months in. I'm still also trying to understand, like, how would this work? How does this make financial sense, one? How do I also maintain my relationships with community and, and, and being in these different spaces as right. well, right? And, and which is going to be a hard place yeah. to navigate, quite, yeah. quite frankly, right? So it's a new model that you can see if it works and there's things that are going to have to be modified about it. But my intention at the end of the day is one is how do we, how do we, how do we respect people? <laughs> I mean, it's basic. yeah, it's so, it's, it's really so basic. basic, but it's so lacking the engagement that, that, that happens <clears throat> generally. So transactional it's, as you said before, it's following protocol perhaps, but it's the, it's the minimum that needs to be done and it's yeah. never really sustainable. It's never really designed to really begin. I think from the place that you begin, which is coming into a community and thinking that you build relationships right. so that as community grows, you, you build on those. I think sometimes folks that are not grounded in a community don't come in with that knowledge of how to even begin. Yeah. And so I think this unique niche that you fill is that you have you have your feet in different worlds mm-hmm. and you have this this expertise that then you can apply both to extract uh, information from but also build relationships mm-hmm. with and also to inform the, the planning world. And so let's see if we can start there and talk yeah. a little bit more about how you came to the idea of Pueblo, um, the kinds of projects that you are interested in taking on or your approach to taking those on or... Sure, yeah. Start. Well, I think you, you brought up a number of interesting points and, and the first being about like how these interactions usually takes take place are very transactional yeah um we need you to go do this i'm your client you bring it back to me in this way that that is problematic but that's the way folks are used to doing things and, and, I, and I think there's an uh, there's more and more of an acknowledgement that in order to do you know equity planning or so, planning with social justice at the heart of it transactional is not going to take us there yeah and and for myself is one as a planner i i acknowledge that i do not hold relationships with community members that oftentimes it's the community-based organizations that do so if i go into a new community i don't hold those long lasting relationships that is gonna that is gonna be required in order to have um, people feel comfortable being engaged in the process in which they have historically been left out of and intentionally been left out of. And so acknowledging that the importance of community-based organizations that hold those relationships. Folks need to have trust with the community if they are are able to do effective and genuine community engagement. I acknowledge I don't hold that. I'm doing projects all over the city. And so partnering with community-based organizations, organizations that are rooted in the community is key. But also having them be part of the development of what does community engagement look like in that community? Right. Are they a community of artists? Are they a community of storytellers? Are they, are they a community that has engaged with that organization that they do already weekly bike rides? Are they, what, what, how is the community already being engaged in a way that's meeting their needs? Right. And how do we incorporate that into to the planning process? The other thing too is that that for moving from transactional transactional to like relational types of exchanges or relationships is that acknowledging risk. If the community-based organization, they have a relationship with the community 
what's at risk for them is that is that losing trust of the community. Mm. What's at risk for them is is breaking 10, 20, 30 years of relationship with the community. If the community feels that that their voice and their concerns is not being heard by the agency in which hired that community-based organization or by the planning firm. Traditionally, how, how this kind of community engagement has worked is that the agency hires out a planning firm or a contractor of some kind, then they subcontract to, to, the, to the community-based organization. What's at risk for the, that big planning firm or, or that contractor is perhaps their relationship to, to the agency. The potential risk of if, if they feel that they, they bring up an issue that they won't be able to get the next contract that comes online. So, and then, and then the people at the agency, the staff people, what's at risk for them if they, if they want to in, ensure that community voice is being heard and integrated? What's at risk for them is potentially maybe they don't have the leadership that will support that kind of conversation. So their personal job's at risk, right? What's at risk for the community? If they're not heard, maybe they're displaced. Maybe, maybe they, um, there's another loss of life on the street. So everyone in that ecosystem has some kind of risk right. in the relationship. And I, I think first we need to acknowledge what, what all those levels of risks are, but then also acknowledge like at the end of the day, not being able to live where you're gonna live or being hit by a car or, or being pulled over by the police unjustly, that risk is much greater than you or I at the end of the day. Yeah, can you rephrase this, the other part? I, I was just like, I went off on this tangent and... Uh, it was a tangent, but yeah. it, was, it was a good tangent in that, in that that question of stakes is really important because um, it is often really hard for because of these relationships for a community-based organization who is trying to communicate something about the way that a project is going to be implemented, or they might risk that relationship altogether because they're mm -hmm. too difficult to work with. Mm -hmm. um, so there are all of these different sort of calculations that folks have to make when engaging around changes to their community. And you mm -hmm. see that a lot in disenfranchised communities of yeah. color where those folks really have to, am I betraying my community if I step up and, and take this contract even? Uh, am I going to be perceived as in helping gentrification if I engage with in this way? But at the same time, it's really hard for these these organizations to survive, and so they need these contracts in some way as well. Mm -hmm. So there's all these different stakes at play. Yeah, and, and it's also like, will this improve the overall health and safety of the community? And also being being able to be in that privileged space as well to yeah. to be able to communicate those concerns. So there's all these things that are that are happening that that are beyond transaction, right. that, are, that are sometimes interpersonal, that are sometimes um, elements that, that make planning a much more complicated process than how we're taught in school, yeah. or than how the process has traditionally been set up. And oftentimes been set up in this very siloed approach. We're doing transportation planning, so that means where do you need that crosswalk? But if you ask the community, how do we make the streets safer? They're going to tell you five other things that don't even deal with that right. crosswalk. They'll tell you the crosswalk. That's basics. Right. So what I'm interested, too, is like helping continue those conversations so that we can have more intersectional type of planning yeah. that's respectful all the of everyone's risk involved, but it is also um, understanding that the way we move through space is doesn't just have to deal with the crosswalk, but also has to deal with 
who am I as a person? Right. And how those two things intersect. Yeah. So in coming up with the, the idea of, of Pueblo is making sure, like even on the website, you know, making sure that it's clearly noted. It's a values-based participatory planning and design firm. And even out there in front, acknowledging that planning has traditionally and historically destroyed communities of color. Yeah. And use the planning, planning as a legitimate force to do that. But also recognizing at the same time, which, and this is why I, despite all those experiences and those battles that I've been a part of, is that I'm hopeful because I also see that planning could also be a tool that rectifies those issues.